Sure, it's a very tricky proposition, and I mean, I think the reality is that what 80% of the uh, investable assets they go to the established uh, managers, such as the ones in the B top 50. So there's a very long tail of smaller managers and emerging managers that have to fight over the scraps, right? So I think I think unfortunately that is the reality. Most new CTA benchmark themselves against the B top 50 index comprised of the some 20 firms in possession of more than 50% of the industry assets. These are the largest and most successful firms in this particular category. The question is, how does an emerging manager compete and break in knowing 80% or more of the available investor capital flows to these few firms? The good news is that all of these firms at one stage was also an emerging manager. Of the 20 firms in the index, 19 of them started with AUM less than $5 million. Interestingly, each of these firms had their best annualized returns for the first three to five years in business, returning on average 20% per year. Once their AUM grew beyond $500 million, Their annualized return settled around 10 to 12 percent and their correlation converged. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence, and courage you need to invest like or invest with one of the top traders in the world. It is the stories that you never get to hear set out as the most honest and transparent account that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world. Today you're listening to episode 77. If this is your first episode you've heard, you might want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. Before we go any further, let's find out who's on today's show. This is Kim Bang, founder and managing partner of Prolific Capital Markets, and you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks for doing that, Kim. And by the way, if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode or any of the earlier episodes, just visit toptradersunplugged.com and sign up by hitting the little button in the top right corner. It's that simple. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Kim, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nels. Now, our conversation today is a little bit special, as you are the first fellow Dane that I have the opportunity to invite on the podcast. I guess there aren't very many of us in the first place and hardly any that have been foolish enough to choose the quantitative investment route as their livelihood. But when I look at your background, I noticed a lot of familiar names that you, one way or the other, have been associated with. So I'll be interested in learning much more about your journey. But 
as an emerging CTA, you, at least to some degree, compete against the 20 managers within the BTOP50 index and who between them have more than 50% of the industry assets. So one of the questions we'll be talking about today, no doubt, is how does an emerging manager compete and break in knowing that 80% or more of the available capital flows will go to the top 20 firms? But of course, the good news is that all of these firms at one stage were also an emerging manager. And of the uh, 20 firms in the index, 19 of them actually started with AUM less than $5 million. So interestingly, each of these firms had their best annualized returns in the first three to five years in business, returning on average 20%. Once they grew beyond $500 million, their annualized returns settled around 10 to 12% and their correlation converged. But before we jump into all of those details, which I'd love to discuss with you, I just have a simple question that I'd like to ask all of my guests in order to appreciate the many different answers that we get to this question. And it goes something like this. If you were in a group of people that uh, you didn't know, and you were just about to leave, say, a social function, and you were standing outside, and you just pressed to order your Uber car, and it informed you that it will arrive in two minutes, and then suddenly one of these people comes over and asks you, so tell me, Kim, what do you do? How do you respond to that? How do you explain what you do? Well, Nils, thank you very much for that introduction. And indeed, it is a real pleasure uh, speaking to a landsman. I think uh, I think you are probably the first Dane that I have encountered in uh, in in this industry of ours. Um, so uh, it's a real it's a real pleasure. I guess um, I, I guess uh, I would describe it um, sort of very succinctly in that uh, we are money managers. Um, I I would say that. Uh, uh, I would reference uh, s- sort of our performance, which uh, which uh, up to date is uh, we're running an annualized return around 19%. And I would point out that the way that we uh, look to earn money for our clients is in a very uh, non-correlated way. Um, so we emphasize a, 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 I would say, sort of a superior or attractive risk-adjusted return. Um, so I would say an investor who is a classic investor in stock, bonds, maybe real estate, if they're looking for diversification in their portfolio, uh, investing with us is a uh, is an attractive proposition. Sure. But we're going to stay with you for uh, a little while longer because I want to get to know your story, uh, how you got into the business in the first place. And also, you know, please add... Uh, as much color on it as as you want you know how were you as a kid what were you doing what were your interests because my personal opinion is that investors don't really understand the numbers that a manager produce unless they understand the story behind the manager so so feel free kim to to take us back to your to your early days and take us through your your uh, your career thank you nels well um I think I have quite a story uh, as uh, how it pertains to this particular business. Um, I grew up uh, in a family where my dad was a uh, shipping man. Sure. And as you know, uh, in Denmark, our shipping industry is is, is quite a, a big one. And um, 
and my dad was very active in the sh in the shipping business, and he was sort of a pioneer in uh, developing the time time charter uh, business in shipping. Okay. And and as you may know, the shipping industry is a very uh, volatile and cyclical industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my dad's uh, business was in in um, in chartering ships around the world and and coordinating cargo on these very ships, and because of the cyclicality of the markets, uh, he was uh, looking for ways to hedge some of his exposure. At certain times, he also got into actually uh, uh, dealing in, in the underlying cargo. So he would actually take possession of the cargo and he have, a, have exposure to the underlying commodities. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, this is going back into, I believe, sort of in the mid-80s, there was a project uh, with the Bifix Exchange in London mm -hmm. to launch a shipping futures contract. And my dad got involved in an advisory capacity to help uh, structure and design this shipping freight index um, contract. And he was one of the, the, the this sort of early adopters of, of this contract in, in a usage for hedging his, uh, his exposure on the shipping voyages. And uh, so, so he got very interested in this business, and he started. Uh, you know, he employed uh, he employed me as a young man to be the data grunt, <laughs> right? So I would uh, I would be responsible for putting in data uh, initially for these shipping contracts, but then later on for the commodity markets in general. You know, I would extract the data from the Wall Street Journal, uh, in recording the prices, the high, low, closes, open. Uh, the volume on the day, the open interest, and all of this data would go, to, go into a, a Lotus 123 <laughs> <laughs> program, right? It's, sure. So you can see we're talking back in the early 80s. Yeah. And, uh, and from that, uh, uh, my dad developed a bunch of models. You know, so this was uh, pretty, I was so, so, so fairly straightforward models. Uh, they were quantitative in nature. They had uh, moving average components. They had uh, we studied a lot of the cyclicality of the underlying commodity markets, and they essentially developed, I would say, sort of the trend following models. If I, if I can just stop you there, Kim, I, I, I know this is about you, but I, I'm interested now in, in your dad as well here. Um, how did he know about moving averages and, and stuff like that? Where where was he getting his so, information from? Right. So, I mean, you know, I guess he was getting information for uh, uh, people around the time that they were in the business. Uh, uh, Wells Wilder, uh, Larry Williams, sure. uh, you know, these are some old uh, yeah. old names uh, in the business that were sort of on the, uh, sort of a little bit on the cutting edge of, yeah. uh, uh, of developing, you know, technical analysis and quantitative models and so sure. forth. Sure. So he, he had some inspiration from, from these guys. And um, as I said, he essentially developed some models and had had a fair amount of success. Um, and uh, as I said, initially started in the shipping side of the business, but then moved on to the broader commodity markets. And over a period of, uh, I would say, uh, maybe some 10 years, developed some pretty elaborate uh, markets and then launched a, uh, a money management business for uh, mostly family and friends and a few uh, sort of business associates. Mm -hmm. And and he ran that business up until, um, I would say, seven, eight years ago or so. Okay. Um, and uh, so that was that was my early introduction 
into the business uh, through through my dad. Okay, and you know, tell me a little bit further what uh, how you, you yourself, so to, so to speak, got 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 uh, involved after your initial introduction uh, to uh, open high low close and 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 all of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. So. Uh, um, well, I sort of went on a parallel track. So my dad was in uh, in Europe, and uh, and he actually uh, launched this business in Switzerland. And at the same time, I went and I I finished my studies uh, here in the States, and I went to uh, get a job on Wall Street. I started my career with uh, Drexel, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, this was right around the time of uh, the Michael Milken and Ivan Bosky scandal. So after a couple of years. Yeah, I sort of had to look for new opportunities, and um, I had a stint with. Uh, so my Drexel career was actually in Drexel trading. So that was uh, in the commodity markets. It was in foreign exchange. It was in the financial futures, and I was involved with research and trading and sales trading. Uh, you know, so this was very much my uh, my passion right. uh, after after having been introduced to this business. And uh, then I had a stint. I went to Luxembourg. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the launch of the financial fixed income uh, futures in Europe. So we're talking about the Bunds, the short sterling, the sure. gilts. And mm-hmm. I set up a trading desk for Commerzbank. Um, and I ran that for a couple of years. And during that time, Drexel Trading were bought out by AIG. Uh, mm-hmm. Maurice Greenberg bought Drexel Trading and launched AIG Trading. And those were my old... Uh, you know, those were my old uh, friends, sure. at, and they they gave me an opportunity to come back to the states and okay. and rejoin that firm, which I did. And so now we're talking about this is uh, in the late '80s, mm-hmm. um, and I went back and I helped them launch a uh, foreign exchange business. I was involved in market making activity, sales trading, um, but my passion and and sort of real interest was really in in developing. Um, this business into a a money management business, which was an interest of of AIG, but only they hadn't really sort of come along uh, around to it at that time. Um, and uh, I was working on developing uh, models uh, in my spare time. I was one of the early adopters of a product by Omega Research mm-hmm. called the System Writer Plus at the time. Today it's called uh, TradeStation. Sure, sure, sure. And and uh, it is a very neat uh, platform that gives you uh, you know a lot of historical market data and the ability to develop programs and do back testing and this kind of thing. And I developed some models and I decided to leave AIG Trading to uh, venture out on my own and to look to raise monies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very fortunate that uh, I got funded. Uh, by Tudor Investments, right, and so this was you now in the very early '90s, and uh, Tudor Investment at the time was running a a um, sort of a experimental program where they would allocate some funding out to emerging managers and talents that they 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 perceived would be talent, and uh, they gave me a very small allocation initially, a few hundred thousand dollars, but within six nine months. I believe I had about $3 million from them. And um, and I did okay. Nothing spectacular. I was focusing on the foreign exchange side of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, they decided to close the program down after about 18 months. Okay. Uh, so, so I was sort of in business and out of business, 
but they were very gracious and introduced me to um, a, um, a consultant who had funds from the Virginia Retirement Fund. And the Virginia Retirement Fund at the time was a real pioneer into this alternative investment space. Sure. And uh, they decided essentially to replace the funds that uh, that Tudor initially had uh, allocated to me. So I got I got that three million dollars replaced, and I ended I I I managed monies uh, for another about eighteen months, so in total about uh, three years, and uh, built you know a little bit of a track record, which was okay. But unfortunately, you know, I found it's, it's very difficult to uh, to pay the bills at the time. Sure. Uh, you know, with a family and kids and, you know, sort of three, four million on the management, it uh, wasn't really, wasn't really cutting it. Sure. And, uh, and then I had an opportunity to go and join Bloomberg and I decided I better get a real paying job. Well, my wife suggested <laughs> that it's probably better I go and get a real paying job. And so I had to, uh, you know, sort of uh, put my, my, my passion and dreams on hold uh, at that time. Sure. And so what did you do for Bloomberg? So, uh, so Bloomberg, um, uh, Mike wanted to build a trading system. So he was looking for somebody with uh, a background in building trading systems. Okay. And a headhunter came to me and said, you know, you are somebody who builds trading systems, <laughs> aren't you? So, you know, you should really go and talk to Bloomberg. Right. Uh, now, the trading system that Bloomberg had in mind had really nothing to do with the type of trading systems that I had developed. Uh, Mike was interested in uh, building a, a really an execution platform to compete against uh, Reuters owned Instanet, ah, okay. uh, which was a stock execution sort of trading platform for institutional clients. And at the time, that business was uh, very successful for Reuters. It was uh, probably Reuters, uh, by far Reuters most successful entity. And of course, Reuters being the biggest competitor of Bloomberg, um, you know, they were, it, uh, Mike, Mike had, was somewhat, you know, concerned about that because they were taking the, uh, the funds and the profits from Instanet and plowing it into building a, a, a Bloomberg competitor. It, uh, they, they wanted to build sort of a Reuters analytic to, to compete against the Bloomberg uh, platform. So the mission was uh, that we had to go and take on Reuters Instanet and, uh, you know, take him out. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> nice and simple. <laughs> and nice and simple. And it, it, was a very, it was a very interesting opportunity. And, and Mike it was really interesting in the way he sort of approached it because he said, he said to us, and we were a small team of three, four people at the time, and he said, listen, I got to tell you something. The brokerage business is a terrible business. Uh, commissions, commission rates, they only go one way. They go down. <laughs> Believe me, I was at Solomon Brothers. It's a terrible business. But don't worry yourselves. Once you accomplish the mission, you take out those guys. Don't worry about it. I'll find you another job somewhere else at Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so that, was, that was sort of how we started off. And um, and the funny thing is that the business turned out to be really a, an incredibly successful business. Um, uh, I ended up running that business for about 10 years. Uh, we built it out. I think we had more than 10,000 institutional users. Um, uh, this platform was used to get direct market access to 
uh, equities, futures, options, the foreign exchange markets. Uh, we really rode the whole electronification sure. of the markets, and we were, we participated in that in 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 that whole uh, period. You know, where all the ECNs uh, uh, flourished: sure. uh, Island, Archipelago, New Edge, Bats. And uh, you know, Bloomberg Tradebook is uh, is still very much um, around and successful today. Um, so, so that that was a very interesting, uh, very very interesting period, sure. and uh, it gave me a lot of exposure to, of course, the institutional clientele, into the uh, microstructures of these various markets, uh, the regulatory environment. Uh, we spent a lot of time building execution algorithms that were very nitty-gritty in, 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 in sort of the way that they worked. You really had to sort of understand the microstructure of the markets. And, um, and uh, you know, the whole idea in that business was to, uh, uh, to try to improve on the execution quality for our clients. And the clients were big, big clients who would, were trading, you know, large amount of stock or futures or options or foreign exchange and they wanted to minimize their market impact mm. right so 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 we developed a bunch of sort of pretty intricate execution uh, algorithms and order types in order to help our clients accomplish this kind of thing fascinating excellent and um, and that's pretty much where you ended before setting up prolific or well so now we are now we are into uh Now we're into about uh, 2010 or so. Actually, actually, I, there was sort of I, I had another stint at Bloomberg um, after the uh, sort of financial debacle of 2008. Um, the Bloomberg tradebook business contracted, you know, sort of pretty significantly, uh, as did volumes across across the board sure. in, in in all of the financial markets, right? And uh, so. Um, uh, so the uh, the managing uh, uh, partners at Bloomberg uh, sort of suggested that maybe maybe I could help them uh, uh, build a uh, or launch a, a new business uh, for them, which was called the Bloomberg uh, uh, Enterprise Product and Services uh, Initiative, which essentially was a um, an initiative to offer out Bloomberg's infrastructure of connectivity, so global network, market data centers, um, uh, market data, and co-location facilities, and all of this kind of thing. So really the infrastructure, the, the, the core infrastructure, sure. Brun Lundberg, offering it out to their institutional clients, uh, making the case that, listen, you know, Bloomberg is operating this uh, incredible global infrastructure anyway, and uh, why not lever it yeah. uh, instead of building out your own? Sure. Sort of in a nutshell, that was the that was the business, sure. and so I was in London for them uh, with responsible uh, responsibility for Europe and Asia PAC uh, for a couple of years um, as as that business was was being launched, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and after that, I it, it for me personally, it didn't really work out so well. Um, you know, I wasn't, I found myself, I wasn't quite as hands-on as I had been with the Bloomberg tradebook business. And sure. I was a little bit frustrated with, with this, uh, uh, this situation. And, uh, so I got an opportunity to, um, 
um, to run a business that was owned by a private equity firm mm-hmm. called Advent International, who had bought a um, a bond uh, bond business, a bond uh, ECN sort of uh, exchange business right. that that served uh, financial um, advisors in the United States. So. There are a lot of financial advisors that uh, serve as high net worth individuals uh, in, in the United States with the big wirehouses. Sure. Um, and we sat on the desktop of 100,000 of these uh, financial advisors. Wow. And, and whenever a client wanted to uh, purchase a municipal bond, a corporate bond, a uh, treasury bond, a CD, any sort of fixed income instrument, they would go on to bond desk. Okay. And they would run some analytics and they would search for the type of bond they were looking for. And they'll get access to our liquidity sort of exchange uh, yeah. marketplace. And they'd be able to source, uh, source this product. Right. So it was a, it was a very interesting uh, opportunity. And I sort of envisioned right, that the bond market was the last frontier in the entire sort of electronification of the financial markets, okay, right, because because the stocks, right, they had gone from being uh, uh, driven by human beings yeah. uh, either on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange or, in case of Nasdaq, uh, traders sitting behind the computer screens and and, mm-hmm. and manually transacting stocks, right? It gone from from that kind of a environment to an environment that was entirely fully electronic, which is essentially where we are today uh, on all of the equity markets and all the futures markets and basically pretty much the option markets and, and, and foreign exchange, right? It, sure. All of those markets have pretty much been fully electronified, whereas the fixed income market has, has really not as yet. Okay. Um, and I, so I thought there was an opportunity to, uh, uh, to take this uh, platform, a bond desk, and, uh, and bring it into the, the age of, of sort of a fully electronified uh, marketplace and try and lever it out and open it up to the broader institutional buy side community. Mm. And so we, we did that for, uh, I did that for um, uh, about 18 months or so. And uh, the business was sold. Mm-hmm. It was sold to TradeWeb. Okay. So today TradeWeb is running that business. So that left me with, um, with a sort of a situation to figure out, okay, what to do next. And uh, after some uh, uh, taking some time off and traveling the world a little bit, and I took my son along with me, who was a recent graduate at the time from NYU, and um, climbed some mountains and you know, you know some hiking around and uh, and sort of decompressing. Uh, and, uh, so thinking, okay, you know, what do I really want to do now? Yeah. And, um, it sort of took me back to, uh, I would say my, er- my early, uh, passion, uh, in the markets and, 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 you know, in this space of developing, uh, I would say sort of quantitative models and, and, uh, and investing in, in the markets, particularly, I would say sort of in the futures, commodity markets, financial futures markets, um, and it happened to be that my son uh, was also very interested in this, and and we we'd sort of been developing models uh, together uh, five years prior to this time. Sure. Um, while he'd been at NYU, uh, he was developing uh, models in using a TradeStation platform, and um, and my son 
he uh, he um, launched a, um, a a quantitative systems development club while at NYU mm-hmm. uh, called the Torch Capital Management Society, and um, he got uh, Trade Station to sponsor. Uh, platforms for the students. So TradeStation provided 20 platforms wow. for for students at NYU and the NYU Courant Institute. Sure. And this uh, this club was the most um, uh, in demand, sought after club at NYU. Wow. Um, on any given semester, they had more than 200 applicants. Uh, to join this uh, program for for essentially twenty slots. Sure. So it was it was a very interesting uh, initiative, and uh, my son ran it for for a couple of years, and uh, had a bunch of the grad students and the PhD um, uh, students uh, join the club, and uh, he gave them assignments along uh, this uh, spectrum. Of I would say the CTA spectrum, sure. and and around the classical uh, trend following modalities, mm-hmm. and and he he assigned these guys different uh, objectives, right? Because you know when we studied the classical trend following um, uh, uh, programs and systems, uh, you know we see that they work very well and can even be extrapolated back in history and sort of you can see that the core uh, components behind trend following has a lot of value. Sure. Um, the problem is that, uh, that it tends to be rather cyclical, rather volatile, and uh, maybe for many investors uh, a little bit hard to stomach, um, you know, in, in particular certain periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're looking over a 10, 20, 30 year period, I think you see really, you know, excellent performance, but the ride can be a rather rough one. Sure. Um, so the, the objective was, is it possible to take this core methodology, this core approach and improve upon it? Is it possible to dampen the volatility somewhat? Uh, is it possible to produce better risk adjusted returns? And um, and so this was the objective of this uh, this group or this club. So we gave them assignments such as uh, uh, you know look at volatility. Uh, can volatility be used to to forecast or improve uh, uh, performance? Can is there a cyclicality components that could be used? Are there um, you know role methodology that could be uh, used to enhance performance. Is there um, is there any kind of uh, uh, you know, sort of a um, more dynamic uh, components that can that can improve and get better traction sure. and better accuracy in the in the in the underlying signals and so forth and so on. So there was a lot of there was a lot of research, mm-hmm. um, and it it went over for for about a couple of years. And along and along those couple of years, um, us we ourselves did a bunch of research, sure. sort of aggregated all the ideas, put it together, and uh, came up with something that we indeed thinks we, we indeed we believe has somewhat better traction, has somewhat better risk-adjusted returns uh, than sort of classic, pure 
should we say, trend following. And, and we think it's sort of nuanced. The nuance is, is sort of more along the lines of what we sort of classified as directional volatility. Um, uh, and we think that we think that our models are able to reduce uh, similar but better risk-adjusted returns than the sort of classical trend-following models. Sure. And, and that's when we launched. That's when we launched the business, when we thought we were there. Uh, we launched in September of 2013. Fantastic. Great stuff. Now, obviously, we're going to dive much deeper into that side of things. Um, but I just want to stay with the kind of the uh, you as a person a little bit uh, longer, but bringing it uh, a little bit outside the um, the working environment, because clearly you're busy as as managing partner of Prolific. That's a big part of your life, no doubt. But what do you do when you're not working? What do you, what do you spend your time doing? So, uh, If there's any time left, I guess. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> I think it's important to have a uh, sort of try to have a, a good balance in, in, in your life. I mean, I, I, I certainly am not shy of working and sort of working pretty hard, but, uh, but I think, uh, you know, it's important to spend time with your family. And I have a wonderful wife and I have four children and, uh, and uh, I think it's important to spend time with them. And, uh, and I also enjoy, uh, you know, physical uh, physical exercise and activities and particularly outdoor activities. So, you know, I enjoy biking. I enjoy, uh, uh, hiking a mountain. I'll do some yoga. Uh, if you'll get me on the, uh, on the beach, like, uh, you know, sometimes I like to go down to, uh, Aruba, go kite surfing, uh, you know, so, uh, sure. so, so those type of things I, I really enjoy. And, and I think taking some time off to, uh, you know, to sort of clear your mind and do some exercise, and sure. I think it's an important thing to do. That sounds that sounds great. Now, in order to succeed with setting up your own business, regardless, really, I guess, in of what industry you're in, you need to be, you could say, at the right place at the right time. You need to have the right team, um, and you know, how do you? How do you plan this? I mean, how do you how do you know if you get those things right, so to speak? Uh, probably more luck than <laughs> anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, in terms of the timing, sure. uh, right? I mean, look, I think that uh, uh, in our case, I think we were lucky. Uh, the timing was pretty good um, because uh, you know, I guess that this this particular industry, you know, it's like B top fifty. I think they probably did very well in 08. Uh, maybe uh, 09, 10, also not so bad, sure. but then sort of went sideways for a couple of years, right? Yeah. So, uh, so if you'd launched in uh, in 12, uh, that would have probably been pretty tough. Um, and but we launched in uh, sort of the fourth quarter of, of of 13, and that's sort of when volatility came into the markets and divergences started to become more apparent and more directionality. And so there was an opportunity for us to extract uh, a, a, a positive and an attractive revenue stream. So I think, I think, look, I think that a lot of that has to, you know, it's sort of circumstantial and, and chance, right? Cool. Um, in terms of uh, the right team of people and, uh, and, and the network and, and so forth, that's, that's uh, more about, uh, you know, that's more about recognizing what do you need to build an organizational structure 
And if you're not going to hire everybody and build a big team yourself, how do you partner with uh, with other people and how do you leverage uh, infrastructures that you may not have yourself? Um, but how do you leverage those points in order to sort of, you know, build a a, a, a platform or a business um, that you can, uh, you know, sort of position at minimum to get off the ground mm. and then sort of, but I think with a longer view to, uh, it has to be somewhat scalable and, and it has to at minimum evolve into an, in, a more of an institutional platform, right? Because in the end of the day, if you, if you want to raise, uh, you know, some real uh, monies, you need to, you need to be able to present an institutional platform. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I'll be interested in 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 uh, diving into that a little bit more. Now, the program that you run today, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it's the Prolific Swiss uh, program, and I guess maybe that goes back to to the days of your father, since it has the Swiss inside it. Yes, that's that's very true. That's that's right. My dad, uh, he uh, he he came up with that name. Uh, he's the one who came up with the prolific and, and he named it exactly as you said, prolific Swiss because he was living in, in Switzerland at the time. And so, so we sort of carry that through. We haven't quite emphasized so much the, um, I guess the Swiss, uh, system side of it because, you know, we're sitting here in New York. Sure. Um, but, but that is certainly the origins. And I would say, however, the other thing is that it's not a singular system anymore. It's really more of a multi-strat uh, program um, that combines, at the core, we would say directional volatility, but also uh, we've introduced sort of a number of mean reversion uh, strategies, some partly built into the core model and, and some really on a, on a standalone basis. So it's more of a, it's sort of more of a, of a multi-strat uh, approach today. jump to the next topic I wanted to ask and and I know and realize that uh, you know you're a, you're a small organization but still I, I, I do want to ask because clearly you have a, a huge amount of experience in uh, building organizations and running them and 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 so on and so forth and and you fully understand what is required uh, in 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 the trading world so how have you structured so called you know your so-called organization as it is today with the AUM you have right now how, how do you how do you do that and still make it attractive for um, investors maybe even institutional investors to take you serious right so um, it's not easy uh, I would say um, but and I think the reality is that uh, if you're going to try to make a go at this business you need to have some monies yourself Sure. that you can put up. Um, uh, so, you know, I think that uh, you need a few million dollars uh, that, that, that you can put into the business uh, yourself. Yeah. Um, maybe you can go to uh, a family member of two and ask for a million or two. And maybe you have a friend or a business associate from your prior uh, you know, your prior uh, life and, um, and maybe they'll put up, uh, you know, a couple of million bucks, mm -hmm. right? So, so if you can get out of the gate, uh, somewhere around five and even better around 10, but I think, you know, that's sort of, 
sort of the minimum level where you you gotta you know where you sort of gotta start. Sure. And um, and I think that uh, you probably can't expect to get any other monies uh, from sort of any outside uh, investors for the you know probably eighteen months. I would think is is eighteen to twenty four months is probably the first. Uh, time, which is around where we are right now. Okay. And 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 we are getting more inquiries now than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from I would call them sort of early adopter, uh, but institutional clients. Right. But but probably institutional clients that I would classify as as uh, very uh, knowledgeable about this particular industry. Sure. Right. So they're very comfortable. They understand the underlying uh, sort of investment strategies. They they they're very comfortable with the type of trading activity that goes on in these markets, and they they understand the risk associated with it and the volatility. And they, they so they really they really understand. But they they and they like they like actually to to uh, make investments around this time frame. And I think the reason is, as you mentioned in your opening. Um, sort of a opening uh, commentary is that you know we've done some some research and it's, it's very easy to do uh, when you look at the B top 50 um, firms which is a, there's about 20 of them in there and uh, it's very clear to see all of them had their best performance in the first say 3 to 5 years in business sure and and the average performance was around 20% which is pretty outstanding and and by the way these firms they launched at all different times right it's not like they all learned launched right. 30 years ago some were 30 years ago some 20 some 10 years ago right so they, they were sort of fairly well dispersed sure and but in common they all had their best returns in their first years of business and and then subsequently they got a lot of money on the management they're very successful and and they continue to be successful i would say but at a lower level Right, so the the returns are almost half, sure. uh, sort of the annualized returns are almost half than where they were in the the very first years, and perhaps equally important, uh, their behavior, uh, their their correlations have converged. Yeah. Right. So when you are an early adopter looking for an emerging money manager and you really understand the business and you know what you're doing, you are in the sweet spot. Right, you're you're really you, the opportunity is a sweet spot to make an investment with a good, solid, emerging money manager, somebody that you feel comfortable with, that you think has the proper credibility and can run an organization and understands you understand their edge and you believe in it. You are really sourcing for a sweet spot. Yeah. Um. You, you know. So. So I think. <laughs> I think that's. I. I sort of think that's where we are right now. We've been fortunate. Our timing. Uh, for launch was pretty good. Yeah. As I mentioned to you, we're annualizing a little over 19% so far, and our shop is uh, running around two, uh, which is which is uh, very high from for uh, for historical standards in this in this space. I think the historical shop of the B top 50 is closer to 0.7. Indeed, indeed, but of course. In, you know, uh, obviously, over a much longer period of time, right. uh, which is uh, and and, uh, but I mean, there's no doubt that you've had a very solid uh, start uh, to to your live performance, and uh, and of course, I've also seen uh, the historical 
simulations of your systems and and they look very intriguing now i before we move into the real sort of nitty-gritty of the system and trading i just want to pick your brain a little bit about um because of all your experience in sort of the 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 the, the, the larger organizational structures but then you know applying it to a small organization today what have you kept in-house and what have you outsourced uh, to the partners that you Uh, mentioned that you can use when you're small right so so uh, some of the things that we so what we're doing in-house is is uh, is clearly we're doing the research yeah and so my son is 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 primarily focused on the research he's the one that has more of a quant background and and so he 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 does a lot of the the research and the testing and so forth and so on Uh, of course i participate in that i uh, am quite focused in uh, sort of overseeing the models and the operational side of it on a day-to-day basis that it's running properly and, and, and so forth sure. and so on. Um, <clears throat> we are we are looking to, um, we're in the process of setting up uh, uh, our, our servers into a co-location site at NY4. Uh, and the reason we want to do that is for having, you know, more subtle, subtle I mean, a more uh, a sort of robust infrastructure, I would say, mm-hmm. and uh, better redundancy and closer to the markets and so forth. Uh, so, so I would call that sort of a, a sort of a little bit like an outsource, mm-hmm. uh, right? In, instead of running everything internally with the internal computer centers and network and that sure. kind of thing. Sure. Um, the other thing we've done is uh, we partnered up recently uh, with a firm called Worth Ventures. Partners mm-hmm. and Worth Venture Partners is an emerging uh, hedge fund manager platform, an institutional emerging hedge fund manager platform. And so, what makes them institutional is that they have a uh, a, 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 a broader staff. Uh, they have uh, 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 you know uh, hundreds of millions under management. Sure. sure. They have they specialize in in uh, identifying emerging managers that they think have potential. Currently, they have about uh, a handful. So we're the we're we're just about to be uh, onboarded. We're launching here in April. Okay. So so we be the the sixth uh, manager, and and it, they have sort of diversified strategies, right? We're we're one particular strategy, and all the other guys are doing other things. But essentially what they do is they come in and they do deep dive due diligence. Uh, they do uh, real-time monitoring and operational due diligence mm-hmm. ongoing. Uh, they monitor for risk and leverage and concentration risk. They do. Um, they keep books and records. They do uh, strike NAVs. They provide compliance oversight and regulatory oversight, right? So. Mm-hmm. So the benefit there is is that it's not really something that 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 we think provides us an edge if we were to in-house it. Right. Um, but and and also the expense for us obviously would be would be very significant. Um, so for us to outsource it and and actually in 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 this case of Worth Ventures, uh, they provide a uh, a a hedge fund sleeve. So. We're part of their uh, co-mingled, diversified program, but at the same time, we have an independent, standalone uh, investment sleeve, which means that our investors, rather than managing uh, multiple managed accounts, 
we can aggregate funds into the prolific sleeve mm-hmm. and we can manage, uh, manage the funds on an aggregated basis uh, there. And that's the sort of third-party oversight, right? It's sort, yeah. of, sort of third-party independent oversight of that monies and, and striking the, the, the NABs and reporting the numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, sure. That makes sense. So uh, yeah, does that sort of a uh, you know those are, those that's sort of I think some of the things that are that are that are necessary when you are when you're trying to start up something from a, um, a you know in really an, an emerging manager perspective, right? I mean the other way is that if you are somebody who is very well known in the business and maybe you've been managing monies for twenty years at Goldman Sachs, and you have a whole team there and you spin out of Goldman Sachs. Uh, you know, it's very likely that you can get funded with, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and you may decide to set up your whole entire infrastructure from scratch and run the whole thing. But that's, of course, because you have a very large asset base mm-hmm. starting off, right? Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. I just have one last question, I promise, on, on sort of organizational, but I, I do find your background uh, super interesting and, and very relevant. And I I think sometimes people underestimate the importance of the organization actually especially in these kind of businesses where usually there are not that many people so the people who are there generally have to uh, um, you know work very well together so in in your experience in the past and maybe it's probably the Bloomberg experience for the most part but and looking into the future and hopefully prolific capital will will grow and you're going to have the same face the same challenge um, uh, within your own organization but but how do you build a strong culture in an organization, in your opinion? What's been your experience in that? Uh, that's uh, yeah, that's interesting that you that you ask me that because um, I you know I, I I worked for Bloomberg for about uh, fifteen years, and Bloomberg has an an incredibly strong uh, yeah. culture. Yeah. And um, and it's a real uh, it's a real uh, talent and effort build such a culture mm-hmm. and it and it it takes i think it takes a lot of effort and, and a lot of time and it is a very valuable thing to have yeah um and uh it has something to do it, it has there's a lot of elements that go into this um but but i give you an example from uh, from bloomberg i'll give you a few examples from bloomberg sure. which sort of really captures the culture in, in many ways for one, uh, Mike made sure that our incentive across the organization, regardless of various departments, was singularly focused on the Bloomberg terminal. So mm-hmm. everybody in the entire organization was uh, remunerated. The bonus was was linked into the performance of. Of, of the sales and the growth of this uh, this product, okay. right? So that's a one way just to align the organization in a, in a very powerful way. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is uh, is something that is extremely powerful and I think uh, insightful from uh, Mike is that he had one pricing policy. Okay. So uh, regardless of whether you took two or a thousand terminals the price would be the same per unit. Mm-hmm. So imagine the impact on the entire uh, organization, all the people and the culture as a, as a consequence. 
is that when price is off the table, the entire organization has to focus on supporting and validating the the the, the cost of, of, of this terminal. Mm-hmm. The, the, the value proposition has to be always very clearly understood and articulated mm-hmm. because there is no discounting. Right. Right. <laughs> that means the analytics have to justify the cost. The sales people have to justify the cost. The support people have to justify the cost. The contract people have to support the cost. The service, every, the entire organization has to sort of rally around validating uh, 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 this cost of the product. Mm-hmm. Right? So this was a very powerful thing, and I think uh, Bloomberg uh, recognized this in in the way that he competed with uh, Reuters and you know the various other market data vendors and mike was basically prepared to say listen if you can't support the price point we're just going to close down the business mm. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's interesting it's fascinating and and i and I, maybe i'm completely wrong here but it seems to me that that kind of philosophy would work very well in our industry because everything everyone in an organization of a alternative investment fund or hedge fund or CTA, whatever we call it, are all focused on, or should be, of creating the best possible output of the program. Because that's what's really going to make a difference to the investors whom we ultimately, you know, are privileged to serve and care for. That's right. I mean, I think I think the sort of two, three things that are absolutely uh, paramount, right, is that number one, you have to turn. You have to be able to show a positive uh, and attractive revenue stream. Mm-hmm. You have to. Uh, I think, as a, an emerging manager, I think it's important to uh, show a differentiating value proposition. Mm-hmm. In other, or another way to say that is, you've got to be have a low correlation. In 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 our case, we benchmark against B top fifty. Sure. So I think it's important for us to show a low correlation to that peer group. Yeah. And thirdly, uh, your risk adjusted returns have to be uh, really good. Another way also to say that, right, your shop ratio sure. has to be very attractive. And, and I think those are, I think those are the key components to, uh, uh, you know, to sort of how you market or present, uh, you know, our product. And uh, if you have those three, I think you have a shot. It's not mm. that it's easy because it's hard to break in uh, to this business for sure. Yeah. But, but I think those are sort of the three components. And if you can, if you can keep producing the quality in those three uh, categories, uh, I, I have to believe that uh, you know, over time <laughs> you'll be able to grow your assets. <laughs> <laughs> As you mentioned, you launched in uh, Q4 2013. So, uh, you know, clearly the, the track record is still uh, coming coming along. Uh, you're at an interesting point right now, but how how should investors read your track record? And I don't mean just, you know, looking at the numbers, but how do you give them the comfort of a short track record when we know usually investors tend to want, you know, 
lots of data in order to decide to get in, even though they tend to use only very little data to decide to get out. But let's stay with the getting in point right now. Um, right. How, how, how do you do that uh, at, at this stage, uh, even though I appreciate what we talked about earlier, that there are certain investors who obviously are more attracted to to these kind of, uh, man, you know, the stage you're in right now in, 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 in your path. But, right. um, but how do we help people overcome this conundrum about length of track record do you think well it's uh it's 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 for sure it's a very tricky proposition and i mean i think the reality is that what 80 percent of the uh investable assets they go to the established uh, managers such as the ones in the btop 50 so there's a very long tail of smaller managers and emerging managers that have to fight over the scraps mm, right yeah so i think i think unfortunately that is the reality um, what you can see, what I have, I have done. And when I, I gave you information on, on our business, I, I included a 30 year simulated, uh, track record. Yeah. Right. And so of course, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt and some people will completely discount it and so forth and so on. What I, what I try to do is I, I try to say that, look, it gives, it's, it's supposed to give you a profile. It's supposed to give you a profile of the type of investment returns, the type of volatility, the type of risk, you know, the type of behavior mm. that you should expect when you invest with us. Mm. Right. So, so if you have that profile, it's sort of a profile you can use to apply to our real-time results and going forward. And it, it's, it's sort of a measure to see are we going to behave inside of that historical profile. Mm. Right. Because if you do behave, if, if, if you're, if you are able to behave along the lines of that historical profile, then it should give you sort of underlying, uh, confidence in, in the, um, in the sort of investment proposition, because that's essentially what you've communicated is this, this profile. This is the, what, what the client should expect going forward, this kind of behavior. Um, the other thing I think, uh, is valuable and a friend of mine, uh, when I asked him for advice, uh, he's in this business himself as a hedge fund manager and been very successful. Uh, I asked him when we launched, he said, how, what's a good way to, you know, how do we, you know, attract clients? How do we get our clients more comfortable with our strategy? You know, sort of along the lines of the question that you just raised. Sure. And he said, I think one way and a very good way is that you should communicate your investments and your strategy and give real examples on 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 how you made money and why you lost money and so forth and so on and he says why don't you send out a monthly update like a newsletter to prospective uh, investors and explain to them you know why you did this trade and and you know why it worked or why it didn't work so we did that. Uh, we've done that uh, ever since we we launched, and mm -hmm. I think um, I think that was very good advice, um, because because it gives the client an insight into uh, your process. Uh, you know why you take a trade, how much risk you assume. You know sort of what you look for uh, when you took off the trade. Uh, did you lose money? Did you make money? Uh, what was the you know, sort of ratio of winners to losers? And what was the proportionality of the gains to the losses, right? Like all these sort of things. Uh, 
And I think over time, somebody who familiarize, will familiarize themselves with, um, with these examples sure. become more comfortable. I think that's true. I mean, I, I believe in that. And I actually did uh, note in the material you sent me um, that you wrote about the uh, recent events in the Swiss franc. Uh, even though you weren't positioning it at the time, you did go to some, you know, some length to explain to your potential investors and uh, current investors what would have happened in terms of uh, P&L Uh, had you been involved uh, in that particular trade uh, on the wrong side, um, and I do, I do agree with you that 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 helps explain. Now, the challenge that all managers have, where there's not a long real track record, but even people with a long real track record face the same issue, and that is, we make changes to the systems; they're not static. Right. So, so how do we make investors comfortable with that? In your opinion, meaning, do we <laughs> yeah. give them a new backtest every time we change the system, or <laughs> right, and right. and this is kind of some of the real issues. And people might think, well, why is he right. bringing, why is Nils bringing this up today? Well, actually, these are real life examples, challenges that we face every single day when we talk to investors, because you know, even firms that have been around for 20, 30, 40 years, their systems are so different today than they were when they first started. And then maybe people will just say, "Well, I'm buying their ability to continue to innovate," and you know, and that actually is a valid argument for sure. But yes. of course, you could always ask yourself, "What do you want to see? Do you want to see a 20-year track record of with lots of changes, or do you want to see a 20-year simulation of the current systems to get a feel for what it's really like today?" So, I mean. I don't know whether you have any thoughts about it, but I do find that this is, you know, and, and maybe this is part of the reason why investors apparently still find it difficult to embrace the systematic uh, strategies, um, even though they've been around for a very long time and been very successful. It's undeniable, but it's also undeniable that it's one of those real love-hate relationships that investors find themselves with and they end up often buying performance which is the worst thing you should do um, because you end up buying the highs and selling the lows and you become your own trend follower of trend followers which is not a good thing so yeah i just wonder whether you have any whether you've had any experience in this uh, with, with with where you are well yes i certainly have encountered those uh, challenges and um <laughs> I would say you're, it's amazing. There are some investors out there that are incredibly black and white about, you know, they don't understand quantitative systems and they don't want to touch them because they don't understand them. And that's the end of it. Forget about it. They don't care what returns you have, what risk adjusted returns. They don't care about anything. They don't understand them. They don't want to touch it. Sure. They just will look at fundamentals, right? It's an amazing thing. I can't really quite comprehend why that is. And to those guys, I I usually I say to them, "Have you ever heard of Jim Simons?" <laughs> sure. <laughs> right? And and it's like you know I, I you know I it's it's just it's just incredible. But there are, really are a bunch, quite a few actually, investors out there who are adamant about this. You know, they just would not invest in, in quantitative strategies. And and to me personally. 
I mean, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm almost on the other side of the equation because uh, <laughs> what, I, what I love about the quantitative strategies is that everything is so quantifiable. Cool. You know, it's like I know exactly what my risk is. Uh, you know, we talked about a, a profile, investment re- profile and risk-adjusted returns, right? I think when you're quant, you can get such a clear picture that, you know, immediately if the strategy is not, uh, you know, sort of performing to that profile and to that expectation, then it gives you a clear signal that something is wrong. Yeah. Whereas if you're a fundamental uh, value player, uh, you know, I mean <laughs> – there's no there's no signals you know it's a, it probably just shows you it's a better value <laughs> the more it goes right the more it goes against you it just becomes a better value sure. <laughs> so you know it's it's a it's a very it's a it's a it's, it's a sort of real conundrum sure. um but i but i do think uh i i do think at some point the historical simulations and the presentation of historical simulations and you know, track records become less relevant. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that at some point we will, we will drop it. Um, the, the, the issue again is that when you are an emerging mm-hmm. manager and if you're going out and you want to talk about what you do sure. <laughs> and, and you're talking about two months worth sure. of performance, it's, there's nothing to talk about, you know, there's hardly, there's hardly anything to talk about. So, <laughs> sure. you know, it's like, it, it, it's sort of, that's where it comes from, I think, you know, you, you got to have yeah. something to talk about. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very true, Kim, uh, indeed. And not that, you know, it's not really um, my forum, it's, it's your forum here today. But, but I, I do want to share a, a little bit of a story in, in terms of when you mentioned this thing that you're probably on the other side where, you know, anything that's not quantitative, you feel uncomfortable with. And I think most people in our business on, you know, probably feel the same. And, and someone shared with me a story um, about, and he was apparently the risk manager for a large bank uh, and oversaw, uh, you know, the, the risk of these uh, banks' proprietary trading and so on and so forth. And during the crisis in 08, 09, uh, he was basically saying a lot of those traders that, you know, apparently people feel so comfortable with uh, in their approach. I mean, they were sitting under their desks, just shaking their head, having, having no clue what to do. Um and and I think it just shows you the the power of of uh, having a systematic rule based strategy, uh, always knowing what to do, and uh, and never be in a situation like that. Um, but it's not; it's clearly not the way um, it's being perceived from from the outside. Uh, so uh, so there's still a little bit of a uh, a learning curve on on that. But anyway, let's jump yeah. to the heart of of our conversation perhaps namely the the strategy and the the program itself um so just from a 30,000 feet point of view tell me what you're trying to achieve uh with the program itself okay so nils at the core we are diehard believers in um in the idea that markets trend and that they have sort of an asymmetrical uh, characteristics mm-hmm. uh, like you know when they move they will tend to move more than when they are stagnant relative to their stagnant uh, uh, behavior when they move it's sort of disproportional to that which gives the underlying opportunity to catch a trend yeah right that that is that is what we believe deep at the core 
Mm. And so as I, as I mentioned to you a little bit earlier, is that the, the issue is now if you believe that, then, then the, the question becomes, well, what's the best way to capture it, mm. right? And, um, and, you know, there, there, are, there are people that have been in the business and have been very, very successful at, 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 at capturing these underlying trends for the past 30 years. And research have shown maybe even go back to a century or even maybe even longer that these core concepts, they work. Um, as I mentioned earlier, is the problem is that, you know, some of those strategies have a lot of volatility and maybe perhaps too much volatility for, uh, for the investor. Or, or should we say the competition has gotten much greater mm-hmm. so that uh, in order to you know sort of have a fighting chance in this space you've got to be better right you've got to mm-hmm. be better you've got to be different um, but 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 being different it, it means that you have to really have better risk adjusted returns uh, and or uh, you've got to have a low correlation right like you, you, you right you can't just be you can't just be like uh, the next guy um, because then why should I give it to you as a, as a emerging unknown sure. when I can give it to somebody who's been in the business for the last 10, 20, 30 years. And, uh, why should I take the risk on you? Right. Sure. So, so that's really where we focused all our efforts. It's, um, can we carve out an edge that is a, 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 a substantial edge, an edge that we think is scalable and that we think uh, can be consistent and produce essentially, uh, you know, competitive returns that are somewhat differentiating in nature uh, to the more established players. And and I think in uh, many ways, in order for people to uh, understand an individual program's uh, ability to do so and deliver the things you just mentioned. I think we need to add one thing, and that is the environment, because to to some degree, I guess, all systems are designed to function in a certain environment. So if you're a trend follower, you want trends. Now, I know that, and we're going to get into that, I'm sure, in much more detail, that you're trying to cater for perhaps a little broader environment, if I can call it that, than, than just the pure trend-following environment. Um, but... Talk to me a little bit about the environment that you're trying to, or at least I could say, where you know you're going to be doing or should be doing well, but also talk to me about the environment where actually you're not expecting to do so well. Right. Okay. So, um, is, okay, so let's see how we take this. Um, I would say that... Uh, uh, First of all, as a as a emerging money manager, uh, and emerging, I, I mean somebody who doesn't have hundreds of millions of dollars under management, sure. uh, by definition, has an advantage, right? So the advantage that we have is that we are smaller and more agile. Mm-hmm. What that means is we can invest in in shorter term timeframes mm-hmm. without having the kind of impact and slippage that a big guy would have. And we can traffic in markets where the big guy can't traffic or he can only traffic to such a limited extent that it really doesn't have much impact on his portfolio. Mm. So for instance, in our case, we are weighted 
in our in our uh, models and a sort of a asset allocation, we are weighted approximately sixty uh, percent to the commodity markets and about forty percent or so to the financial markets. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the big guys, they are probably as much as 75-80% in the financial markets and the balance in the commodity markets. Sure. Right? So right there, you have a very significant differentiation just for the fact that, that you're small. Yeah. And uh, and so besides that, right, I think then you start looking and you sort of start drilling into uh, what are the core differentiation and the underlying markets and so forth. Um, and, uh, and, and I would say that, you know, sort of, uh, you know, well, let, let's go up a minute uh, before we go into the details of the sure. differentiating points on the, mo- on the model, but I would say, so how do we, how do, how does our investment proposition, our investment strategies, how do they make money in what kind of environments would they make money and in what kind of environments would they not do so well? Mm-hmm. So in the, the, the kind of environments that we like are environments where you see economic political divergences so most recently right in the in the economic policies between uh, europe uh, say japan and the united states when you look at the last say the six to nine months you've seen some pretty significant divergences whereas before uh, more or less immediately after the financial crisis in 08 there was a tremendous amount of collaboration and coordination of monetary policies, which resulted in the, um, in the stagnation of the markets and the, and the sort of uh, 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 declining volatility and directionless activity uh, uh, sort of immediately after the financial crisis. Maybe not immediately, meaning maybe not the first year or so forth, but, sure. but it's sort of settled down and volatility was extracted out of the markets and the financial markets saw very little directionality, that kind of environment is a very difficult environment for us to navigate. At best, I would say it's a break-even proposition for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly not an, a great opportunity to, uh, to, to make a lot of money. When you look at the last six to nine months, you've seen that kind of geopolitical finance, uh, you know, monetary coordination of policies and actions have have diverged, and the markets have moved very significantly. Right, so you see the big movements in the dollar, um, and that has been, uh, you, you know, a, a great opportunity. Um, and you saw also, you know, some other uh, situations like uh, supply and demand shocks. So the supply uh, situation in the in the uh, oil markets really changed the dynamics there, and you had got very significant moves, right? Or you could have climate shocks in the agricultural markets. Uh, so uh, a year ago, coffee uh, was trading around a dollar; it went to two dollars. Right, had a lot of volatility. You had uh, uh, some disease in the hog markets, mm. and and the hog markets uh, had some very significant movements. And right, so so any type of I would say uh, occurrences uh, that shifts demand supply in a significant way or causes divergence yeah. uh, across continents, um, that data is processed by market participants and investors, and it causes the markets to shift from point A to point B. And when those shifts occur, it's an opportunity for for people like us to uh, to extract um, uh, uh, you know uh, revenues from that. Yeah. 
No, indeed. And 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 right. And when the converse happens, it's uh, it's it's difficult. You know, trading ranges and declining volatility, uh, quiet markets are are challenging. Sure. Uh, challenges for us. Sure. How many markets do you actually trade, um, Kim? Okay, so so the way that we look at it is um, is is we um, we look at it as, as uh, across market sectors. So we look at it as there's uh, about eight market sectors. Uh, so we look across the uh, uh, financial market sectors such as currencies, rates, equities, energy, metals, softs, meats, and um, and uh, we look to allocate on a fairly evenly basis across all of those markets. Okay. Yeah, because there's always this discussion about whether you should be fully diversified or or uh, or whether you should be overweight in in certain sectors. But um, I mean, I take your point on board, and I fully agree with you in terms of one of the advantages of of, of smaller managers is clearly that they can give you exposure to some markets that that um, that the larger funds can't. Uh, even though uh, you know, admittedly, a lot of the very large funds. Uh, in the last uh, year or 18 months has certainly delivered uh, very competitive returns. Uh, so uh, so that's a, a very positive thing. Now, tell me a little bit more about, again, from the overall point of view about uh, about the models. So how have you structured the program in terms of different models in order to achieve your objective uh, and, and, and the desired uh, performance profile? So, so Nels, I think... Um I think it's very important to have processes um, that uh, processes for how you develop models, do your research, processes for risk management, processes for portfolio construction, processes for execution, you know, seeking best execution and so forth. Um, because processes can are repeatable. Uh, processes are clearly defined. And it gives you a framework for discussion if you want to change anything and why you want to change it and so forth and so on. So I think these and, and for building an organization, I think uh, it's all, these type of things are, are very important. Okay. So I could share with you, for instance, a process around portfolio construction and risk management sure. and the, the way that we look at it. And it will give you sort of a little bit of an insight. Um, so. You know, when you start off uh, as an, from an investor point of view, and I'm, of course, an investor myself in our business, sure. uh, I think an, an investor naturally will start off with saying, well, uh, for every million I invest, how much am I willing to risk? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what percentage of my capital am I comfortable risking? So in, in, in our case, we said, well, you know what, we're, risk, we're willing to risk a max 15, 20% of our invested capital. And then the second thing we said is that, okay, well, I could put my money, right? I could put my money with one of the big guys. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's right. That's, we, that will get a certain return profile, or expected return profile, but we want to be different and better than the other guys, right? So we said, if the average in the industry is around 0.7 shop ratio, we want to have something, we want to, come up with something that it's at least above one mm -hmm. in order to introduce this uh, sort of competitive uh, differentiating and value proposition. Sure. So that's that's where we started off. We said, okay, we're willing to risk 15, 20%. We want to come up with something that produces something better than a one shot. Um, 
then we said, uh, in terms of our models, we want the models to be able to work across a wide set of markets. Mm-hmm. And, and we made a decision that uh, these wide set of markets was across these eight sectors and that we would want a more or less even allocation across these sectors. So our allocation is somewhere between 10 and 15% across eight sectors. And we did that partly because we just wanted uh, a, a broad diversification, true diversification, and partly by doing um, correlation analysis, historical correlation analysis among these various markets, sure. and to verify that indeed, do they really have low uh, correlations? And, and indeed, that's what you find that, uh, you know, there's not a lot of correlation between meats and metals and metals and, and, uh, and oil and the soft commodities and so forth and so on. Sure. So there, there is real value to broad diversification. But you could come up with saying that, oh, well, maybe the best producing market is, um, is the uh, meat market. And so I'm going to allocate, you know, 80% to meats and right 20% to the rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't we didn't want to do that. We wanted to have pretty even the distributed allocation. So so that was sort of one one uh, component. And if you drill down and you look at the markets underneath these sectors, um, we lined them up. So there are approximately an even amount of numbers, uh, uh, individual markets underneath the sectors. Sure. Right. So so depending on the assets on the management, we would. Um, uh, allocates to the individual markets underneath these particular sectors, right? So the minimum allocation that would be acceptable to us was one market in every sector. Right. So eight markets, right? But if we had the capital, then we would take it to 16 markets, right? To 24 markets, to 32 markets, to 40 markets, 48 markets, 56, and so forth. Sure. Right. So that's sort of the philosophy, that's the, the approach that we're building it. So currently we're running around uh, I think we're running around 32, 40 underlying markets mm-hmm. per million. Right. Right. Because we've been running managed accounts right now, but we're looking to move it into a fund structure. Sure. And so the fund structure becomes very interesting for us because it's going to enable us to, um, uh, to add some additional underlying markets inside of these sectors. Mm-hmm. And it's also going to give us greater granularity in terms of the risk weighting across the board like right because the each contract right has a certain size and and so the granularity becomes better absolutely yeah right right so we're so we're very excited about <laughs> we're very excited about this opportunity sure. to put all the bodies in one basket because we're going to be more granular yeah. in our allocation and more granular in our risk uh, management and, and ex- fine-tuning the amount of contracts we can put on so mm-hmm. forth then we then we look at okay we also want time series diversification okay so so currently we've been able to run two time frames mm-hmm. because we've been managing these underlying accounts of 1 2 million each yeah. and we haven't been able to diversify across uh, beyond two time frames because of the size constraint right so so ideally we like to run at least three time frames okay and and our time frames is uh, average holding period on the short term is around three days medium term is probably around three weeks and longer term around three months yeah and and uh, currently we're allocating 50 percent 50 percent across the two time frames where we want to move to an allocation of about a third in each time frame mm-hmm. sure. and so again sort of this philosophical perspective of of an even weighting 
right? Because the reality is that in our case anyway, the shorter term time frames uh, actually have better risk-adjusted returns, higher shock ratio, mm-hmm. right? But but we are sort of making a deliberate decision that no, you know, we want. <laughs> Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.